Hi, everyone, and welcome to the November 26th, 2021 episode of the Automotive News Canada podcast. I'm your host, Greg Layson, the digital and mobile editor here at Automotive News Canada. Folks, U.S. President Joe Biden wants to give huge rebates to Americans if they buy electric vehicles built in the United States, but not on EVs built in Canada or elsewhere. My guest today explains why this policy, in his words, not mine, is worse than Trump policy. He also explains how the chip crisis is starting to pinch Canadian auto suppliers, and he also tells us who he thinks is to blame for the problem. As always, we're sure to get some candid takes from the head of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, Flavio Volpe, on this episode of the Automotive News Canada podcast. Flavio, thanks for joining me on the podcast this week. Always a pleasure to be on, Greg. Always great to have you. Uh, Let's start here. For our listeners, briefly explain what it is the Biden administration is proposing when it comes to the manufacturing of EVs in America. Uh, There is uh, legislation that's gone through the House and is now in front of the Senate that uh, essentially um, offers a uh, tax incentive of up to $12,500 to American EV customers uh, exclusively to vehicles made in the U.S. For the first five years of this, um, uh, there is a part of that is a $4,500 kicker for uh, for cars that are made in exclusively in union plants, and then all becomes part of the same pool in 2026, 2027. It is um, especially harmful to Canadian automotive interests. You know, Greg, we make 2 million cars a year or so in this country, 75% of those that go to the U.S. market. You know, our uh, our industry is geared to the tastes and dynamics of the U.S. market. If, uh, if this administration, uh, this Congress, sets up a scenario where U.S. consumers are looking at uh, two vehicles, you know, not knowing uh, country of origin, uh, but... Uh, one is $12,500 cheaper than the other one. Guess which one they're going to buy? Um, it is contrary to the U.S.'s WTO obligations as well as its uh, USMCA obligations. And, you know, we, we would like for them to uh, back down or, or uh, you know, maybe uh, possibly get a Senate uh, vote that, uh, that knocks it down. But we will 100% defend our interests uh, uh, using whatever vehicle is available to us. And just so we're clear to the layperson, the, these incentives differ in the U.S. compared to the Canadian one because the Canadian federal rebate is on any EV, correct? And that's the difference that's here right. is, is the country of origin of the vehicle, right? That's right. Uh, can, uh, federal and provincial EVs in this country are WTO compliant, which just means they're their incentives for early adoption, the incentive for tr- for transitioning to a zero carbon, uh, you know, transportation ownership. But we know what our obligations are in Canada, and we follow them. The U.S. ones are discriminatory. They're, you know, Greg. Let me explain it this way. Uh, Donald Trump threatened us with uh, a 25% tariff on any vehicle that's made here. So you've got a a car that is uh, uh, you know, a $40,000 car would suddenly become a $50,000 car in the U.S. And if, you, if you're a U.S. customer, you're an American-based customer, you look at the American option at $40,000 or the, or the Canadian one at the $50,000, you're going to buy the one at uh, $40,000. I call that a potential car apocalypse. 
this one here takes those two forty thousand dollar vehicles. It says, well, the Canadian one will still be forty, but the American one will be twenty seven five. It's worse. So it's you think this than- is worse than Donald Trump policy? And we know how outspoken you were against Trump's policies for the most part. You you think this is more harmful than something he's proposed in the past? I mean, you know, from a if you do the math, uh, there's no room for interpretation. It is worse. And and so how many jobs or how many millions of dollars or how many exports does this cost the Canadian uh, auto industry if in fact this policy passes in the U.S. I mean, Greg, I, I can't envision a worse scenario. If 75% of the cars that you make here are suddenly uh, overpriced by $12,500 in the market you need to sell them into, um, you know, you're talking about uh, existential questions about whether uh, it makes sense for, for most of the assemblers to make cars here. You know, with all due respect to... You know, the Japanese manufacturers here who uh, sell a lot of what they build here, um, they probably make up the vast majority of the of the 25% of the vehicles that stay here. You know, the, the uh, American brands have been, uh, their, their facilities are set up to sell to American customers, which I think is a great strength until you run into uh, politicians who, don't understand or don't care that this is in this is the most integrated market in the world. How would you describe the feeling in the Canadian auto parts sector right now? Is it is it fearful? Is it angry? I, I just wonder how your members are feeling about this and what they're telling you. I think they're a little bit surprised uh, by the fact that uh, this new administration is just as protectionist as the one beforehand. Uh, I think that there is a perception that is uh, misguided amongst Canadians, but also leaders in our industry, that, uh, you know, Democrats uh, are are better uh, partners uh, than Republicans for Canada. Uh, there is a protectionism that is really bipartisan at this point, uh, you know, stemming probably from the bipartisan approach to, uh, to uh, uh, you know, China as, a, as an economic adversary. Uh, and I think that they are uh, surprised that it's also gone this long. Um, you know, uh, Canadian assemb- Canadian part suppliers are big investors in the U.S. and in Mexico as well. So, you know, they, they're also worried from the U.S. standpoint. You know, there's 150 factories in the U.S. Uh, employing 43,000 American employees owned by Canadians. And the other half of this um, the other half of the of the damage that this uh, incentive will do is, it's going to push uh, assemblers to make in the U.S. to make cars exclusively for U.S. customers. If that's the case, it never crosses a border. It's never subject to a customs action, and it's not subject to the regional value content uh, provisions of the USMC, which drives out local content. It means that American-based manufacturing or or a vehicle assembly is going to increasingly buy. Um, foreign auto parts, uh, ironically from Mexico, uh, but also China, Vietnam, Malaysia, other countries with world-class parts and systems that just cost a whole lot less. And so there's a lot of concern, uh, to be honest. You were in Washington during the uh, the summit between 
Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. Um, how do you rate the Canadian government's response so far and what transpired there? Because we read the headlines that say, essentially on this file, that Trudeau came home empty-handed. Is that a... Is that an accurate description? How do you rate the response and what happened? Well, I mean, uh, I've been a lot closer to this than most commentators of the last uh, few months. This government has been very active, uh, especially the embassy in Washington, with congressional leaders, uh, both uh, House and Senate, and with the uh, with the White House and senior advisors. We did not expect that the president was going to back down um, to, the, to the prime minister and the president of Mexico's requests. I mean, it just... I mean, it's just a naive expectation, especially given what mm -hmm. uh, local politics are in the U.S. Um, we left them with zero doubt that this is something that we absolutely need to see uh, changed. The president, so on the, it, and I think that the, the, the prime minister and his team were right to focus on uh, congressional meetings the day before they met the president. So they met with House leadership and Senate leadership, both sides of the aisle. Uh this is going to come down to a Senate vote. And so we watched the president go to Detroit, go to a GM plant where um, uh, they're building the, uh, the Hummer, the EV Hummer, and say, double down on his commitment. To me, uh, to the team around the prime minister, um, it was a clear indication that, uh, that I think uh, the president knows that he's uh, possibly uh, going to lose that Senate vote. And so doesn't need to back down because the Senate, Joe Manchin from West Virginia may do it for him. And so he went to beat his chest uh, with his, uh, with the stakeholders uh, that he was trying to uh, address with this uh, incentive and, and uh, maybe all for not. So in the meantime, or, or yeah. if this passes, um, what can we as a country, the, the federal government or the industry do to combat this? What are the next steps? And if it goes through, what happens then? What is, and I hate to use the word retaliation, but something I assume needs to be done. How do we combat yeah. this? How do we meet this? Look, uh, we know and we're supporting uh, Canadian officials, both federal officials and provincial officials, uh, meeting with and uh, lobbying uh, senators right now. You know, it's going to a Senate vote in a couple of weeks. Um, we're also doing a direct outreach as well. The focus is on this Senate vote. The White House has clearly indicated they're not going to go in and, and um, you know, uh, change the terms uh, of the, uh, you know, negotiate to change terms of the legislation at the Senate to its peace. And then it goes to House Ways and Means Committees and all, all kinds of different other instruments. The the reality is we should also be, and we are also preparing for what happens the day after. And this isn't a bilateral issue, or it isn't even a trilateral issue. This is a global issue with the U.S. U.S.-based US auto assembly is about 12 million units a year. Uh, American consumers in the you know regular year, like 2019, uh, buy 17 million. It's the biggest import opportunity for car makers from around the world. And... Uh, all the biggest brands in the world sell to the best customer in the world there. Well, all of those countries have um, uh, signed on, their ambassadors have signed on to a letter two weeks ago to the administration uh, to say, look, let me remind you, you're a WTO trading partner. And we all have other uh, bilateral and, and multilateral agreements with you. Uh, live up to your obligations. I think that Canada needs to be part of that. And I know that the, that the conversation in Ottawa is how do we 
how do we dispute this? Do we use the USMCA or do we use the WTO? I assure you that the Japanese and the Germans aren't going to stand still. And it might be that they're, you'll see an EU challenge uh, through the WTO or Germany challenge, uh, an Italy challenge, uh, uh, certainly a, a Japan challenge. And so Canada can and should be part of that that wider uh, group that says, hey, um, you actually can't do this and uh, we'll, we'll reverse it. I know you tweeted uh, maybe about a week ago or a week and a half ago uh, something to the extent that we have the raw materials they need for battery production and and the like. Do does Canada make it difficult for the United States to get its hands on those materials should this EV incentive pass? I think we need to be careful on on not responding to a uh a WTO uh, offense uh, with uh, one in return. But I know that the Prime Minister uh, and his team uh, took careful moments in all of their Washington meetings to say, there is no such thing as an American EV without Canadian raw materials or Chinese raw materials. So which uh, which source are you going to pick? Or are you going to develop uh, a partnership with Bolivia on lithium? It, it's nonsensical to think, you know, the, the, the president has been saying for months, we've got, we've got tens of billions of dollars for, um, for uh, you know, microchip uh, building, microchip capacity building, and we've got the same amount of money for battery building. And yet the fact of the matter is, is that, uh, they've also said the raw materials, we don't care where the raw materials come from. We just want to do the final assembly here. Well, the path for energy security in, in an EV future for the U.S. is through uh, Canadian uh, resources and mining. And uh, we should find a way to flex our muscles, but without also uh, doing the second wrong in this. You mentioned microchips. Let's go there because I'd like to know what is the latest in the chip crisis in terms of how it's affecting the parts industry here in Canada or, or generally? I mean, what is the latest? How is it affecting the parts uh, suppliers? Well, we've seen uh, all the major publicly traded uh, parts companies um, file their third quarter earnings uh, over the last few weeks. And um, we can see that it is hurting them. Uh, you know, we're having uh, a, a sense that uh, if we look at our customers, the, the OEMs who created this problem uh, by making decisions uh, to let go of microchip supply uh, during the pandemic and then losing their spot in line, uh, treating uh, suppliers the same way they would uh, be treating them in a in a in a good year, in 2019. You know, they're still in the business of uh, pushing on givebacks. Uh, they're not willing to, uh, you know, there's there's microchip, but there's also the related inflationary pressures on all the other raw materials. They're not willing to enter into negotiations with suppliers to say, look, we're gonna we're gonna share some of that pain. I think they're pushing a lot of the pain of their own decisions into the supplier network, and we're starting to see suppliers, not the major ones, but the smaller ones, getting to a point where, you know, uh, cracks are starting to appear. And um, I wouldn't, you know, look, I wouldn't, uh, this isn't a wide brush. You know, there's a lot of OEMs that are being a lot more thoughtful, the ones that you might expect. But there are ones that really affect the Canadian supply chain that are, uh, that are not being active partners in this. And, uh, you know, I'll remind uh, 
I remind them, as I always do, that you know we're in this microchip mess because car makers decided uh, to cut back on their supply of microchips and lose their spot in line, not because of automotive uh, suppliers. And you know, Greg, we got scenarios. I had a I had a supplier say to me last week that um, you know we have a scenario where uh, their OEM on a specific plant was uh, said, "Look, we're going to do a, we're going to be back in full production next week, and on the Friday before, uh, cancel that." We've had uh, orders uh, canceled after they've been put in trucks, or that they've been uh, sitting at the dock waiting to go out. You know, suppliers are now starting to have to work in the cost of uh, financing uh, that inventory and storing it. And the other thing is, is hey, look, we're in a crazy labor market. So if you're not up and running, but you don't know when you're, uh, what your customer is going to be asking next week or the week after, when you're not letting go of your staff, because you'll never get them back. And so it's, we're at the stage of this semiconductor crisis that I think is a bit of a reckoning. And I think the OEMs have to uh, start to reconsider how they're, uh, the, the, the type of pressure they're applying to the supply chain and start to share some of that pain. Otherwise, supplier failure, is going to be the next crisis for uh, OEMs. When does the chip crisis end, do you think? I met with the leadership of uh, one of the main OEMs uh, that is uh, present in Canada um, for um, with regards to this uh, last week. And what we were talking about was a normalization perhaps in the second quarter of next year. Well, it's a really, really long runtime. Uh, and they were predicting up to 20% um, up to 20% of uh, production, planning production being uh, canceled. Now, you know, if that 20% is coming in the first half of next year, you know, uh, that we're really talking about on an annualized basis, that rate is about 40%, uh, you know, uh, through that, that period. And so, you know, we've got to find different financing uh, solutions. We've got to renegotiate a whole bunch of terms uh, or, uh, that's still six, seven, eight months out, and um, and I think people need to be adults about uh, what we think is going to happen. To me, this is starting to feel a little bit like uh, uh, 2009, 2010, and uh, the reason that uh, uh, the OEMs, a lot of OEMs survived is because government helped them with liquidity, but the conditions on, on some of that liquidity help is, hey, make sure that your suppliers stay liquid. Uh, I know because I was there on the other side of that uh, – on the other side of that agreement. And I'm starting to feel some of the same uh, uh, dynamics right now. Flavio, always great to have you on the show. Uh, Tons of insight, much appreciated. I wish we had more time. It's a real pleasure, Greg. Thank you. We reached Flavio at his office in Toronto. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, have a suggestion or simply want to comment, email me at glason at autonews.com. And remember, you can listen to all our previous podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or on our website. Just click the podcast tab at the top of the homepage. That does it for this episode of the Automotive News Canada podcast. We hope you'll join us next time. So long, everybody.